You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. I would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Ganyagehaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Jojage, or Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today I'm speaking with Molly Latif about her paper, The Gendered and Racialized Dimensions of Fibromyalgia, a Contested Chronic Pain Illness. Malia is finishing her sociology degree at Concordia while taking pre-med courses, and this is actually her second degree as she's graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacology from McGill in 2017. Her academic interests lie in critically analyzing the gray areas present in the field of medicine with an intersectional approach. A topic that is of particular interest to her is the interconnection between sociology and medicine. Hey Malia, how are you doing? Hi Marie, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Um, So racialized and gendered mistreatment in medicine is a topic that we've been hearing increasingly about, especially since the increased Black Lives Matter protesting of this past summer. But could you tell me a bit more about what your research is on this subject? Yeah, so um, having a background in science and an interest in medicine, um, I basically, when I found out I was going to be writing a thesis, I started looking into the discipline of medical sociology. And I came across like the central theme of construction of the social construction of diagnosis and illness. And it really caught my eye. So um, in my thesis, I kind of go into like the social construction of medically unexplained symptoms and the context on the context that brought upon the chronic pain condition called uh, fibromyalgia. Um, and now this, um, this diagnosis of fibromyalgia is so heavily debated in the medical field. Um, And I kind of wanted to go into why it is an illness that women are mostly diagnosed with and not men. And also the other thing was also going deeply into the racial dimension of pain and why black women women are undertreated for pain in the, you know, in the the medical system. So yeah, that's how I incorporated in there and we can go further into it as we go along. Okay. Um, in your paper, you mentioned a term MUS. Could you explain what that stands for and also what fibromyalgia is? Yeah, so illnesses like fibromyalgia, um, all, they kind of coincide um, with um, like illnesses like fibromyalgia and others like irritable bowel syndrome and chronic f- fatigue syndrome are, are kind of like under the umbrella of medically unexplained illnesses. So they have like medically unexplained symptoms. And as the term says it, this means like their system, their symptoms cannot be explained medically. Therefore, they defy the medical explanations and the evidence-based treatments. And the thing is, this comes with a price, right? Because strictly peace speaking in medicine, uh, fibromyalgia is not a disease. Rather, it's like a functional somatic syndrome. That's what they called it. And it's represented by like a collection of symptoms such as like a chronic widespread pain, stiffness, fatigue, sleep disturbance, and multiple like reproducible tender points at like symmetrical and specific locations in the body. So like just hearing this, you can tell that it's like a wide array of symptoms, right? Like it's not something specific. Mm -hmm. And like patients that have these like medically unexplained symptoms undergo like 
crazy amounts of tests, like medical tests. And like, sometimes it goes on for years and like, they, they don't get answers. Right. So like patients suffering, like, for example, for instance, in my paper, I go into like uh, patients suffering with uh, fibromyalgia, the period when they like start getting these symptoms and then finally receive an accurate diagnosis can be really lengthy. Like it could be up to like, I think it was like 6.7 years long. So yeah, so that's what MUS stands for, Medically Unexplained Symptoms, and fibromyalgia is underneath that umbrella. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. Six to seven years is a long time to be in the dark. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that there's a common assumption that illnesses, as we understand them, are like entirely biological, but your work looks at how there's a strong socio-cultural element to the way that illness is conceived of. So how is illness socially constructed? So um, when I was looking into the field of medical sociology, I learned that like med- medical sociologists use like this theory of social constructionist um, to interpret the social and subjective experiences of illness. So the majority of their research is based on in-depth in- interviews, analyzing how people see and manage it, manage their illness and with what consequences, right? So key social structures um, in the construction of illness are also investigated by these medical sociologists. So they look into the, the effects of class, race, gender, culture, political economy, uh, you know, all the professional structures and all these aspects and how these shape um, the basins, uh, basis of our law, knowledge regarding assumptions about the meaning of a particular disease. So this is what I did with my discussion in fibromyalgia. Like I tried my best to address the obvious gender dimensions, like why women and their pain is less likely to be taken seriously and why they are most likely to be diagnosed with this uh, contested illness. But then the other aspect I went into was the racial dimensions. And for this, I kind of had to dig deeper, right? So the main question was like, why are Black women undertreated for their pain, like I mentioned before, and how does their race as well as their gender like intersect in this whole thing? And there's another thing that you mentioned Um, in your paper, the medicalization of illness. Could you explain this kind of process and how that relates to your work? Yeah, so medicalization, it focuses on seeing um, how previous non-medical problems became medicalized. Um, So that is when human problems become defined as medical problems in terms of illness. So uh, illnesses or diseases or syndromes. And uh, like how a particular diagnosis is developed and how it becomes accepted as like a medically valid, um, you know, illness and used to treat uh, patients' problems. Now, in, in the history of medicine, though, medicalizing chronic pain has been a huge development. Like it was a huge progress, right? Because it legitimized the suffering of people and their pain. So this all happened because of several theories that came out in, in psychology, you know, in in medicine, it's called something called the gate control theory of pain. There are also medical advocates for pain treatment. Pain, pain clinics actually came up, became established. So, uh, but the thing that I kind of wanna wanted to go into was that although chronic pain has been medicalized and treatments are available, people's sufferings are not granted social recognition nor validation without a diagnosis, right? But then when women are diagnosed with fibromyalgia, even if after several years, they finally get this diagnosis, it's not deemed as like a legitimate disease. So like I noticed that there was like a hierarchy kind of present amongst diseases. Yeah, so that's what I went into. So 
in your experience and your research and your opinion, why is my fibromyalgia treated so differently to other illnesses? Is it because it's unexplained? Yeah, so definitely that is a big factor. I think it's the fact that it's just classified under medically unexplained illnesses. So medical institutions just tend to give a lower status to fibromyalgia, So, which is why the diagnosis of fibromyalgia is controversial because the illness experience of people with this pain condition is yet to be seen as legitimate and visible. So like, let's say someone with a high prestige disease, uh, like hypertension or something, you know, cardiovascular related, um, are more like, likely to have their healthcare needs met because objective tests can be done to diagnose them. Whereas the test that is used for, to diagnose women with fibromyalgia, it's called like the tender point test. It's not considered objective in medicine. So it's not like a real test. That's what they say. So the tender point test is done when doctors are, are like unable to detect a link between the patient's symptoms and the underlying cause with the blood test scans and x-rays and stuff. And, stuff, right? and this goes on for years, like I said. So it takes like six to seven years. Um, now, as these years go by, though, patients from like research articles I read um, said that the whole process is just unsettling because even after they're given the diagnosis, patients felt cheated by like the fibromyalgia label because it's so debated, right? And like usually a diagnosis is like a relief, but in their case, the medically unexplained label of fibromyalgia just does not provide validation to their experiences and it affects every aspect of their social lives, their self-worth and like their identity. Wow. So you kind of started to talk about intersectionality and Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality as a lens, which you can see where power emerges, collides, interlocks, and intersects. Um, why is intersectionality such an important perspective to maintain while looking at this issue of fibromyalgia treatment? Yeah, so I'll start with like where it kind of came from and why I started going in that direction um, uh, while I was writing my thesis paper. So I took uh, this professor's course. His name is Dr. Jasper. Um, the course was called Global Feminism. Um, she identifies as a woman of color, uh, a black woman. And I'm went to go speak to her about my thesis uh, topic. And her main advice was to dig deeper into the topic. She's like, I, I get that you're digging into the gender aspect, but she's like, there is a huge race, racial um, aspect to it too. And like, uh, I took a psychology of pain course back at McGill. And I realized that while taking that course, like when Dr. Jessler said this to me, I realized that, oh, wow, like um, there was no mention about the gendered and especially not like the racial aspect of chronic pain management right? Like, yes, fibromyalgia is a gendered illness, but also like the majority of pain suffer, uh, pain conditions have like a significant racial dimension, right? Where like the most marginalized groups of people, Black women, um, and their pain is not taken seriously. So this is where intersectionality comes in, right? Because in the case of um, contested illnesses, women of color with fibromyalgia have a harder time than white women proving that they are impaired by this disease, this condition. Um, so the application of intersectionality is useful in capturing like the multi-layered marginalization of women of color suffering from the contested illness. So current research actually in um, medical sociology overlooks how a person's gender intersecting with their race and ethnicity shapes their chronic illness experience due to the oppressions imposed by society and cultural expectations. So for this, I kind of had to go dig a lot deeper into like the academia and all these academic articles to find like black women or women of color talking about their experiences or talking about research that they did. 
So like depending on like the social position of a person diagnosed with the illness fibromyalgia, it can result in really diverse illness experiences, right? Like for instance, like someone with a lower socioeconomic status, right? In a lower class may not be able to afford going to all these medical tests, right? And doing all these tests, especially if they live in the United States, right? And like how this affects their identity and like their social identities can be like pretty harmful. Yeah. Um, and I want to come back to the the racial aspect, but um, while I was reading your paper, I mean, there's that whole, it, it goes with the medicalization of illness and everything. And I just want to know, I guess, if you could explain how gender has historically played a role in how patients were treated for, for these unexplained illnesses or like women's issues. Yeah. So this was an interesting one. I feel like this is, um, this is an aspect that I think people do hear about in history courses or history class. But uh, so I obviously went into the whole making of fibromyalgia and how it came to be. And um, in, in a few sentences, I'll explain it because it's, you know, it's years and years of making. So in medical literature, women have actually often been portrayed as overly emotional or hysterical. So therefore, women have had to actually socially negotiate for their claim symptoms to be qualified as a uh, biological disease. So in regarding to fibromyalgia and how the dia- diagnosis came to be, every single step towards its social construction was debated. Now, fibromyalgia is a gendered syndrome in part because of its historical associations with similar types of disease and with um, negative stereotypes of women. So it has been actually described as the latest manifestation of a psychiatric disorder. Um, So originating in the 19th century, the coming together of female patients with like broadly like embodied distress or like, you know, like pain or just anything uh, gave birth to the diagnostic classification of hysteria. So many women with fibromyalgia tell of situations where their complaints were uh, trivialized and they were personally like written off as overly emotional, neurotic and hysterical. So um, in fact, racial biases have been identified as one of the factors that influence whether a doctor will provide patients adequate treatment for their pain symptoms um, especially when it's female patients. And when you add race to the mix, it's, it's like a whole nother story, right? It, it, there's just so much to it that we can go into. Would you be able to go into some of those like historical or even present biases that, that we have seen affecting the way that um, people of color, women of color get treated? Yeah, so like I'll start off with saying like race is not biological, right? Like it's a social con- construct. So it was created by society, right? Right. So research that interrelates race and disease class- classification shows that there's these type of pseudo binaries that are present where they map like two kinds of pain onto two kinds of bodies. So these two kinds of bodies are the black female body and then there's the white female body. And these two bodies are pinned against each other. I know it sounds really... <laughs> metaphorical but when I go deeper into it you'll kind of see where where I'm going with this so historically medical research has focused on younger white male adult bodies as the normal standard for diseases in many clinical studies there is no mention of race in fact the researcher um, uh, that I looked into her name Labunsky um, she did research on like the intersectional and racialized dimensions of gynecological pain Um, and she suggested that Black women were previously and likely continue to be missing from medical research. 
And because of this, ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people because women of color in particular have just been vastly underrepresented in scientific research. And black patients actually are less likely to be given pain um, medications. And even if they are given pain medications, they receive lower quantities. And that's like alarming, right? Like black women are like at an increased risk for chronic pain conditions that are more severe, more debilitating. And they're just undertreated compared to men and white women. So there's obviously like a, an obvious health disparity between black women and white women. And now if you relate this back to history um, in the United States, uh, beliefs that black people and white people are biologically different were advocated by scientists, doctors, and slave owners to justify slavery and inhumane treatment of black men and women in medical research. And in the 19th century, um, doctors actually went on to establish these physical differences of Black people that could serve to distinguish them from white, from the white man. And like some doctors believed that Black people could tolerate surgical operations with little or if any, no pain at all. And like well into the 20th century, which is not too long ago, 20th century is not too long ago, researchers continued to experiment on Black people and based in part on the assumption that the Black body was more resistant to pain and injury. So as a consequence, the Black female body was socially constructed as being strong, able to endure pain and, you know, overcome these difficult obstacles. And like these colonialist ideas about the inferiority of Black people and the long history of slavery actually ingrained racism into Western society structures and, and, and institutions. And this is just one institution I'm talking about, the medical institution, right? So like today, these notions continually influence um, the view of medical institutions and Black women suffering from pain symptoms. And this is like, a, it's a heavy topic, but like we, ha- I feel like we have to kind of talk about it because like, it's present, it's there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has to be talked about because you know, people are suffering at, at the fact that this is in the dark and no one wants to talk about it. And people, you know, they profit off the fact that people don't believe them. Um, but I especially want to come back to, you were mentioning, you know, the the um, relationship that's created between Black women and their bodies being strong. And so we've now have this trope of the trope of the strong Black woman which on the surface seems good, but we also now understand it to be extremely limiting and harmful to Black women's emotional well-being. But, you know, it can be also super harmful in other ways when put in conjunction with chronic pain illnesses. Could you ex- like explain this kind of like double stigma, this double, yeah. Yeah, so um, when I was looking into my research, um, I looked into Black feminists and their writing. And they talked about like the role of the controlling image of the strong Black woman um, and how it's played in the social construction of Black womanhood. And like this image was grown from the history of Black women's exploitation as unpaid laborers during slavery and later as underpaid workers and service providers. So their position as working women, both inside and outside um, of of the home, conflicted with the traditional white American family ideal that was women women's roles should be restricted to either being a mother or a wife. So the position of Black women being, you know, working outside and also coming home and taking care of their children, you know, did not let them conform to the white standards of womenhood and femininity. So research suggests that for Black women aspiring to conform to the strong Black women image can be empowering. So like you said, on the surface, it seems empowering. 
but then it, it is harmful to their health and their self-identity, right? And like all women with fibromyalgia encounter gendered stigma during um, interactions with physicians, right? But women of color face intersectional stigma relative to the racial privilege of white women. So the intersectional stigma experienced by black women suffering with fibromyalgia extends to their social world as well as their workplaces. So um, not being able to work or working with reduced working hours, um, people with fibromyalgia find their lives being more restricted financially and they have to rely more on others, right? So one of the research that I looked into, um, the researcher was talking about that when Black women apply for disability benefits, they struggle to find doctors willing to support their application for disability. Um, like Black women, she interviewed, like the, the researcher interviewed, um, on average, highly educated. They're highly educated and they were forced to leave successful professions because of their debilitating symptoms, their pain symptoms. And um, the thing is, like, they also face the skepticism about the legitimacy of their um, le legitimacy of their disability that carried over to their social relationships and their families, as well as their communities, as well as the Black community. So as I mentioned, the image of the strong black women emerged out of the era of slavery, which consists of celebrated traits such as selfless, nurturing, independent, showing physical and emotional will to make it through like great difficulties. However, women with disabilities are socially constructed as being weak, dependent and unfit as providers, as they are considered unable to fulfill their uh, expected gender roles as women. So since the characteristics of black women include being hardworking, independent and caregiving, then the presence of a disability, so having chronic pain symptoms, directly conflicts with the traditional ideals of Black womanhood. Um, so Black women that are suffering with fibromyalgia, the layering of dismissal that gets imposed on them by like the intersectional stigma as well as from their own communities does not really allow them to be in pain or be disabled, right? So they cannot leave their jobs and access disability benefits due to these, the, the systems of oppressions and gender and race. And to make matters worse, they also do not receive sympathy from their family and communities because of the, the invisibility of the syndrome and also the image of the strong black woman. And if you go deeper into it, like black women, black people of lower class um, cannot afford to be disabled because they are required to be abled in this white supremacist society, right? So they, they don't really have a choice. Yeah. And I'm sure that, you know, um, the whole trope, the stereotype of the angry Black woman definitely doesn't help um, women who are affected by chronic illness to be outspoken about their mistreatment. And yeah, and I'm definitely sure that it creates an extra moral judgment from these physicians who operate in these racist um, systems to overlook them and to really not want to help them. Yeah, definitely. So like, there is definitely like a moral judgment there. And I'll talk about what that is. Like when I was looking into my research, um, every woman's fibromyalgia story involved a struggle to have their symptoms recognized, you know. Um, and since like contested illnesses are not proved by biomedical evidence, they are suspected of existing only in the minds of the people that have this illness or have this chronic, you know, these these pain symptoms. So these people are judged morally. Okay, so women with fibromyalgia are subjected to negative labeling, right? And accusations leading to humiliation, shame and blame, and even social exclusion. 
So doctors have speculated that women with fibromyalgia are are just unmotivated to get better because they do not want to help themselves. So this this is like a form of like moral judgment, right? And it's referred to as the term malingering. Um, and like this disbelief and accusation played a role in the history of hysteria, where physicians in the 18th century described the frustration with the ineffectiveness of hysteria remedies they prescribed. So these people who had these pain symptoms, they were easily branded as malingerers, who basically are just capitalizing on this broadly defined syndrome. And um, so people with chronic pain find themselves unsure about their placement in the world, right? Because they feel like they don't look sick enough to meet other people's criteria or because, you know, the medical, there's no medical evidence to prove it. And now what this happens is that if we go back to like the, the black, uh, the strong, um, uh, strong black women trope, um, some black women with fibromyalgia actually end up resisting the diagnosis, right? So even if they like they, they receive the diagnosis, they resist it because of the internalization of the skepticism they receive from every social sphere of their lives, including doctors, employers, friends, and family members, right? So, and like the other thing is they may also resist it in order to conform to the the strong black woman image despite their pain or because they cannot afford to leave their jobs. And like some of them may even catastrophize their pain symptoms in a way to to get prescribed medications for their chronic pain. So they might actually um, say they're having worse pain just so, you know, just to convince doctors to prescribe them meds. Um, and that's awful, right? That's It's awful that they have to do that. And this reinforces the already present assumption of fibromyalgia that these patients are malingering, right? And then it just, yeah, it's a vicious circle. Yeah. So then the other thing is the other, if you just add something else on top of this, is that the stereotypical image of a woman with fibromyalgia is actually a white middle-class woman. So some women presenting to physicians with pain symptoms may never even receive a fibromyalgia diagnosis. So giving, so it gives them no chance at an attempt to legitimize their suffering or, you know, try to get disability benefits. Um, so as a consequence, they are then pushed further into the sidelines um, of the healthcare system. Upsetting stuff. It definitely is really upsetting. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, there's Muriel Njumu, Joyce Eshaquan, Candida Macarine. I mean, these are names of just three women in the past six months who have faced unfair medical treatment in the Montreal area, which many believe that mistreatment has led to their untimely deaths. Um, so how can we address and confront these ableist, sexist, and racist systems? Yeah, that is like a heavy question, right? Like, but this is a, like, this is a question we should all be asking ourselves. Like, what are some ways we as individuals, um, how do we address these ableist, sexist, and racist uh, systems that are obviously in place? And I don't know if I'm knowledgeable enough yet to answer this one, but I'm going to try to give it a go. Um, I think one of the things is that you should be willing to dig deeper and question, um, question the systems that are in place. Like, don't take things for granted. Ask questions if need be. Be critical and like, let your voice be heard. Do not afraid to take up space, right? Especially if you're a person of color, right? So... Um, like we as students or just like individuals, like we can't make like instant, huge macro level changes. 
right? I, I mean, although I wish we could because the world is in, is in need of like a lot of help. And this past year has been a big proof of that. And like, just like you mentioned, the, the names of the women, like that, you know, that clearly is like, we, that's something that we need to look into. We should be looking into and it should be talked about. But I feel like it's just been put to the sideline. Now, it is possible, of course, to make these little, these changes, but like we all need to start somewhere. And like somewhere we have control, right? So I would say we have control over our immediate environments, right? So the least we can do is try to do micro level changes. So micro level interactions. What I mean by that, it's like, let's say our immediate surroundings, such as our workplaces, schools, and friends, family members have discussions with them and like be ready to listen to others who may not actually see that these these systems are in place and that they're still present in our society, right? Like there are so, so many people out there who just don't even know about what's happening. And like help these people recognize that although they haven't been directly affected by this, it's it's a privilege for them to to, to not be directly affected by that, right? And like speak up in situations um, that seem wrong to you. And like I would say, like don't be afraid to do that. Like I feel like this is something I'm working on myself. Like where you know speak up when I feel like something's wrong or I see something like a something racist or something you know something like that. Like, I just talk about it. And like obviously representation matters, right? Um, but we all have like the responsibility as a collective to speak up against these issues. And like at the end of the day, we all need to do better, right? I feel like there's always room for enhancing your views, educating ourselves. Like I don't know everything. I'm learning something every day, right? Like speaking up for marginalized communities, right? They're tired of speaking up. <laughs> like, you know, other people should be doing their part. And like just bringing awareness about the injustice that is so clearly present and evident in uh, you know in our day-to-day lives and like uh, I think you mentioned in the beginning where like yes the past year we've seen like the Black Lives Matter movement rise up and like take up space and I feel like we need to continue doing that like it's not over right like okay yeah it, it came up and it went but it's not over it's still there and like I talked about like racial biases that are seen in like one institution right, in the medical institution, but this is, this is across all institutions, this is ingrained in our system. And like, I would say like this obviously starts with acknowledging our own internal and like implicit biases and like working on ourselves. And then eventually, I feel like this is going to lead to a confidence to your, like for you to be confident enough to fend for others. And yeah, like I, I can't, I feel like I haven't answered like the question that you asked, but I'm I'm trying to say like, this is what I've learned in the past year with everything that I've read or I've seen or seen on TV with Black Lives Matter with, you know, these, these women of color being treated ever so poorly, you know, in, in uh, the medical healthcare, healthcare system. So yeah, I don't know if that was good, but. <laughs> uh, no, it was. There's, I mean, there's no one size fits all answer because there's no one size, there's no one situation or one system because of all these intersecting issues and identities um so yeah I agree it's not over it is you know kind of I mean maybe just the beginning you know yeah this past summer we saw a lot of people get mobilized and that was great but yeah we do need to continue the the energy and the the yeah the effort that was put to collective re-education yeah I completely agree with you with the this is like just the beginning well, um, unfortunately, we're almost out of time today, but I'm really curious as to what you're up to right now or where you see yourself going in the future. So I've been through like a tough year. I think we've all have 
with the whole COVID-19 situation. So currently I, I'm kind of, I'm working on medical school applications. I'm taking pre-med courses and just like overall focusing on myself and by my mental health and healing. And like, I'm continuously learning and educating myself about matters that are important to me. And like, if and when I get into the medical field, I'm ready to like advocate for better ways to manage people's illness experiences. And like, I want to dig into the gray areas um, that are very much present. And I've witnessed myself, you know, and I've learned about in my education. So like I mentioned before, like we all have to do more. And this more is subjective to everyone, of course, right? It's not like one shoe fits all. But for me, it's raising awareness and inspiring better treatment towards um, individuals in marginalized communities. And like at the same time, <laughs> leaving some time for a self-care, right? So like, you know, obviously focusing on others, but also focusing on yourself because I feel like we can't, we can't get anything done if we don't focus on ourselves first. Couldn't have said it any better <laughs> myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, it was really, really great to talk to you. I learned a ton. Um, yeah, it was a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Marie, for listening. And <laughs> thank you for having <laughs> me again. <laughs> of course. Okay, take care. Take care. To read Malia's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories for Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CGLO Radio Station. It was hosted and edited by me, Marie Figuereo. Our sound design is by Malta Leander, and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CGLO Airways at cglo.com or on their channel 1690 every Wednesday at 4pm. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.